stories to you. Hello, my name is Nick Milligan, and I'm your host for this episode of the Newcastle Writers Festival podcast series, Stories to You, for 2021. This conversation will feature two music biographers, Stuart Coop and Mark Mordew. Thank you for listening in. I'd like to begin by acknowledging the traditional custodians of the land on which I live and work, the Awabakal people, and I pay my respect to elders past and present. I'd like to give a warm welcome to Aboriginal people who are listening to this conversation. Our guests for this episode are both veteran music journalists and biographers. Stuart Coop has published a range of acclaimed non-fiction books concerning music and the music world. Back in 2003, he published the rollicking must-read book, The Promoters, which looked at the five giants of entertainment promotion in Australia, amongst them Michael Chugg and the recently departed Michael Gadinsky. In Coop's book, Roadies, he took us behind Rock's Curtain from the perspective of the unsung heroes of live music, the road crew. And in 2015, returned to the subject of his friend Michael Gadinsky with the biography, Gadinsky, the Godfather of Australian Rock and Roll. He's also written a book about Aussie rocker Tex Perkins. Today we'll be discussing Coop's latest book, which is simply titled Paul Kelly. It will come as no surprise that the book is about one of our nation's, if not the globe's, great song craftsman, Paul Kelly. Coop has something of an insider's perspective on his subject, as he was Paul Kelly's manager during a crucial moment in the songwriter's career. Our other guest on today's episode is Mark Mordew, a music journalist, writer, poet, and Nick Cave biographer. We'll be discussing his latest book, Boy on Fire, which charts the rise of Nick Cave as an artist and cultural icon, focusing on his formative years, his life in Wangaratta, the trials and tribulations of art school, his girlfriends, and the formation of his seminal band, The Boys Next Door, who would of course go on to become The Birthday Party. Mordew was given unprecedented access to not only Nick Cave, but his family and peers. The result is a work of stunning intimacy and attention to detail. Welcome to the podcast, Stuart. Thank you, Nick. And uh, welcome, Mark. Thank you. Thanks. Uh, now, I want to start with uh, an obvious question, I suppose, and that is what made you want to write about these particular subjects in Paul Kelly and uh, Nick Cave? Uh, Stuart, in, in the case of Paul Kelly, as you mentioned in the book, uh, he wrote a fairly sprawling autobiography back in 2010 called How to Make Gravy. Uh, but you felt that there were some parts of his career that he'd, he'd missed. What were the, the gaps that you felt uh, needed to be filled in and, and why did you want to write an extended piece about Paul? Yeah, look, I, I loved How to Make Gravy and I thought it was, uh, you know, a fantastic, uh, insightful 600 pages. But, yeah, I read it and I went, oh, God, there's a lot of stuff that he's not dealing with. And that's that's his that's his prerogative. It's it's, it's his book. So he, he chooses to write about what he what he wanted to to write about. But, you know, I, I certainly noticed that there was... Uh, he didn't give a lot of attention attention to to his emerging period in Adelaide in the, in the early to mid 1970s. He dismissed the high rise bombers in about you know as one of the high rise bombers said everything he said in his own book about the high rise bombers was correct. There was only a page and a half about them, you know, and and so and again the dots there, there was a lot of that 
sort of um, that period really wasn't dealt with in in Paul's book. Also, Paul didn't deal very much with any of the business machinations. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, uh, you know, I managed him for seven years. I didn't get a mention. I, you know, not that I expected to get a mention. I didn't mind, but you know, even you know, Michael Gadinsky got you know a couple of lines here and there. So you know, he he chose to write a write a certain type of book, uh, and I wanted to do a different book, and I, I really wanted to. I spent quite a lot of time going, how do I make my book different to Paul's? Because there was absolutely no point in rewriting How to Make Gravy. So I stopped looking at How to Make Gravy. I stopped looking at anything that had ever been written about Paul. And I thought, uh, what I'm going to do is give voice to the things that aren't in Paul's book. And outside of that content, the main thing that the main voices that were missing in Paul's book were by the very nature of his first person book, everybody else. So I drew up a huge list uh, that ended up being about 80, 85 people who were pivotal to his world from early on right through to the present day. So I, you know, I, I didn't know because until the very end, I didn't know how much of Paul I was going to get. You know, he yep. said, go ahead and do this book. Uh, and th- there was a verbal agreement that he would sit for, I don't know whether it was plural or singular, the use of the word interview, um, towards the end of the project. So I was ostensibly writing a book really without Paul's involvement, hoping that I would get some and, of course, been pleasantly surprised by how much I I got. But my my, my exercise was really to talk to the people that toured with him, recorded with him, played with him, observed him, um, you know, all of all of those things to create a picture that wasn't being told by Paul Kelly. Because you mentioned that uh, he was quite reticent to begin with and you had been chasing him for a, a little while to convince him to, to uh, really allow you to write it. And you mentioned in, in the book that you sent him, I think it was a one-page pitch that convinced him uh did it did that one page contain pretty much what you just said or was there one thing that you really uh sort of singled out to try to convince him no i don't think the one page was all that great to be honest <laughs> okay yeah I, I mean i i spent about five minutes on it uh, oh, okay. okay it was it was really <laughs> look uh, it was i i just said look i want a bigger broader look at your life and times i think you know I, it was sure. something along along those lines look he yes he was he was reticent, uh, partly because I was a former manager, uh, and he said he was, you know, not sure about a, someone who'd been his manager. And, and I, I pointed out to him that I was an established journalist for many, many years, and that's in fact what, how we met. Uh, mm. So I had runs on the board as a journalist before I attempted to be his manager. Uh, so th- there was that. Uh, there was that reticence from him and uh, I'm trying to think what uh, and I also just pointed out to him that like any like Mark subject and everybody else I mean he's in the public domain and I did say to his more his manager Bill Cullen I said it's only a matter of time before someone writes a book about Paul and it may or may not be someone whose best friend is 
Mr. Wikipedia and Ms. <laughs> Google. Um, and uh, so I said, look, I, I, I do my research and I talk to lots of people and, you know, um, and, and also I, I have a, 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 an ongoing um, knowledge of Paul, you know, experiences that m- most other people don't have because I worked so closely with him for such a long time and, and, and you know, known him since 1976 or 77. Um, so at that point he... He gave his blessing, you know, in, in some people have said, oh, why is he, why is he allowed this to happen? Because like every artist of his statue, there's an element of control that's so important to, to what they do. And, and Paul is very controlling of his career and his public image, you know, and as Mark mm. would say, they all control it more than they want us to realise. Mm. Um, but then someone said, well, maybe he actually wanted you, because he knew that I would go deep into the early years, maybe he actually wanted the dark, desperate, post-Adelaide, Melbourne, pre-Sydney time written about and revealed, but by someone that wasn't him. So that, mm. and because when at the one time he commented about the book, he said, Stuart knows the long game and he will go for that. So yeah. there maybe there was an element that this guy was going to, you know, write about all that stuff that he chose not to write about in, in his own book. Or possibly through uh, various uh, substance abuses, doesn't remember a lot of either, perhaps during that time. Yeah, like his, his memory on his memory is probably like all of ours. It's um, it's razor sharp on some things, and you're absolutely right. It's it's either uh, fuzzy or deliberately oblique, uh, or, <laughs> or whatever the word is I'm looking for on on some things. I mean. There was one. There's one situation in the book where you know he prior to mushroom he he had a publishing deal and and I and I asked him about that and he said I just don't remember. When right. I went, I went. You don't remember? I mean, <laughs> the guy kind of lent you a piano, and you know, and you wrote all these pivotal songs uh, from your early days, and you don't remember. And look, maybe he just does not remember. Mm. Um, and look, there there are parts of. You know, my, my memory of of Paul is is for the most part really really good, but I, you know I have blank spots. You know, I'm a Dylan obsessive, and I was on the 1986 Bob Dylan tour of Australia and New Zealand, covering it for various numbers of publications. So I'm Dylan obsessed and Paul Kelly's manager. You would mm. think I would have some memory of Paul opening for Bob Dylan at the Sydney Entertainment Centre, right? <laughs> I have wow. no memory of that at all. Okay. And in fact, I almost came to blow, verbal blows with someone um, some years ago who said, oh, yeah, well, when we played with Dylan, and I went, you never played with Dylan. <laughs> and they said, yes, we played with Dylan. I said, no, 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 no. Paul played with Dylan much, much later. You didn't, you didn't do a show on the 1986 tour. Mm. I was I was wrong. They did a show on the 1986 tour. So. Wow, okay. There you go. <laughs> uh, Mark, you uh, have this new book, Boy on Fire. Uh, you have previously written a book about Nick Cave, I think in 2012. With... No, no, no. I was trying to write a book about Nick Cave, but it's oh, okay. a different title. Sure. And uh, that project kind of ran aground. And, okay. And, uh, you know, stretched out into... Uh, every part of my life like a bit of a, an earthquake and this <laughs> new book boy on fire is kind of the aftermath of, of what i attempted first time around okay so did, 
did you focus on his formative years as you have because you sort of didn't get much further in the research process? What was behind uh, the reason for focusing just on the, the formative years of Nick Cave? Well, uh, it's a complicated, long, twisted story because okay. you know, the, there's a, a kind of a decade behind the book, which people talk about it, that it took me 10 years to write, but, but really it's more like five years to write it and mm-hmm. five years just to kind of deal with the rest of my life from kind of relationship breakup to you know, making a living to all, all these sort of things that, that come into writers' lives that, and to a lot of people's lives that is, that is just... I mean, this is the irony of working on a big biography that the chaos of living can get in the road of actually writing the project. Mm-hmm. It was really interesting to hear Stuart talk because I feel like we have a lot of similarities in our approach, particularly the social aspect to a book and talking to many people. Um, <clears throat> both Paul Kelly and Nick Cave are obviously big artists with uh work with not just a, a big body of work but work that goes down deep and that's often the problem not the the breadth of the work so to speak but just how, how deep down into it you can go into the rabbit hole and and stay in one place looking at a song and you know what it references what poets what what, what you know how it's used in a film what lyrical turns the melodies you know the whole kind of musical archaeology of it etc cetera, etc cetera. So, you know, when you deal with big, sophisticated artists like that, you know, it's, it's for sure it's easy to get overwhelmed. And initially when I was trying to do a complete life of Nick, I used to joke with people, well, imagine if Patrick White was a heroin addict and lived in, you know, Melbourne, London, Berlin and Sao Paulo uh, and run amok all over the planet, then you'll have some idea of what I'm trying to do. Um, and I don't think that was that far wrong, really. But uh, basically, I'd attempted to do a, a full life and was just falling further and further behind. And then I, I started to think, well, you know, this is ridiculous. I'm biting off more than I can chew. It's a massive sort of subject to take on. Everybody who comes into the book is practically a novel in their own right as well in terms of their sort of, you know, musical history and, you know, whether it's a, initially when I was thinking of a full history, whether it's the Vin Benders or Roland S. Howard or... Blixer Bargel, French Dersenoy Bouton, blah, 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 on and on. And I, I tried to convince my publishers at the time that we should try and do like a portrait of the artist as the young man as a stepping stone. And then I'd move into a, you know, a, a volume two or a volume three. But they wanted the whole thing and I just couldn't do the whole thing. And mm. so that just led in a very roundabout way to the entire kind of collapse of my life and uh, a very kind of messy time of it. But, you know, I mean, I have to say, you know, like it, and also to a strange trajectory too, which I was interested to hear from Stuart as well in regard to Paul Kelly, where my book kind of began in a sort of semi-authorised way and ended up being completely unauthorised. And uh, I think those sort of ambivalent zones are probably good places to be if you're a biographer because if you're too much in the pocket of the person that you're working with you, you, you don't want to kind of do something that's a hagiography and and also too if you are kind of venturing into it from a social dimension through all the people around an artist I think you get something a, a, a lot better and a, a lot more interesting I and mean, it always amuses me that particularly fans seem to think that every word uttered by an artist is the absolute gospel truth. You know, as if you'd believe anything Bob Dylan said about himself and other people at any time. I mean, it may be well true that in the way Bob Dylan communicates, 
at least six different things he said across six decades amount to some kind of competing truth. But, you know, like all of us, like memory comes into it, you know, the, you know, these these guys are unreliable narrators. That you know what they say in the and, and what they, what you think and say in your twenties versus what you think and say in your sixties are very different. And it's not to deny either version. So, you know, so it's a it's a it's it's a big sort of complex competing thing that you're trying to put together. And, and you don't really need to get rid of the contradictions either. That's what makes the the work more interesting mm-hmm. for me. Certainly in Nick's case, you know. Yeah. One of the things I want to ask both of you, I'm sure the listeners will be interested to know, is where do you draw the line when you're telling the story of someone's life? Do you draw a line at all in terms of what is off limits and what can go into the book? Uh, Mark, in your case, because it was sort of went from being authorised to then unauthorised, does that free you up a little bit to include more than perhaps you would if you were in Cave's pocket? Probably, for sure. You know, yeah, it, it, it may be... I mean, the danger is it possibly, you know, like you, you can shift from kind of hagiography to pathography, as they call it, where you wreak revenge on your subject for not being your best friend anymore. You, you don't want to go that way either. Like, you know, and the, the, often people have this kind of polarised attitude, particularly to someone like Nick and the the, hater, the lovers and the haters seem to me to be just two sides of the same coin. And as a biography, you're trying to kind of steer a kind of tight, sort of tense middle path that, that gets the, the best of both extremes, but really is sort of in some, not not objective by its by its nature and style, but that has some sort of balance in there that that, that sort of takes into account um, everything, you know? So, I mean, you know, the, I, I think the issue of, of ethics really affects more the people around the artist when you start looking at a, a broad picture. So... I started to sort of worry a little about collateral damage with people, like you know, right. hurting people's feelings, revealing things about you know who was taking drugs or what people were like, particularly in their sort of teens and when they're getting really rowdy and you know people's parents, all, all these things. You know, like like Nick is a very public figure; he's a very strong personality. I think to some extent, if you want to use the word fair game, which I feel a bit funny about, but he's he can take it. You know, but but other people that aren't celebrities, just because Nick happened to be in their life, like mm. uh, at what level can you cause harm to them? And sometimes the harm can just be through the way you, you sort of sum them up at a pen stroke because that's all the room that you've got for them. And, you know, a certain individual becomes two or three quotes and that they really think uh, I'm actually a little bit more complicated than that and the quotes aren't very flattering either. So, yeah, it's, it's, it, it's more the people around them, I think. Yeah. Okay. And I, I, I mean, I, I, I self censor as I go along. Hmm. You know, I, I know how to spell defamation, uh, <laughs> and I've got a fair idea of how it works. Um, and and but you're also very conscious of. I'm sure Mark's the same. You you you're going. What's in the public interest? What pertains to the art? What pertains to the story? And what doesn't? Um, and so, and, and that's an instinctive thing. You know, there were probably lots of things that I know about every subject that I've written about where I just go, that's a really great story, but it doesn't have a place in this book. Right. You know, and, 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 and frequently you don't. And also memory is, is a, a magnificent thing in that it, 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 it ebbs and flows and people write themselves 
large inter scenarios that happened. And and you know, Paul said to me at one point, he, because he said, How are you approaching this book? And I said, I'm I'm talking to people. And he said, How are you gonna rely on 40 and 45-year-old memories? Mm. And I and I said, I'm gonna ask enough people. And some people told me the most one person told me the most amazing story of involving Paul mm. and Ian Ryland and the whole, you know, it was a great story. Uh, and and I, part of me really wanted it to be true, but I, I just went, this cannot be true. <laughs> and so, you know, I asked so many people, I said, you know, is there any truth in this? And like, and enough people who were around at the time said, no, that's completely made up. And and this particular person, I think they, a lot of them, they do think that their role in the, the lives of fame, more famous people is, is greater than anyone else does. And they've also told these yarns for 30 or 40 years in the front bar of many pubs and at far too many dinner parties that I think they start to believe that these are true. And in my case with with Paul, you know, I was, as Mark said, I was pleased that my book wasn't authorised. I don't ever want to write an authorised book because I feel too constricted by that and I think readers know that you know they the moment I see a book by someone I might really revere and I see the words authorized I go yeah you know I'm not really that interested um so with Paul though I I gave him the opportunity to read it there was no obligation for him to read the manuscript okay uh, I about two weeks two two or three weeks before it went to the printers and I kind of I guess I wanted to know Touch wood, it worked out okay. I wanted to know whether I had, you know, an antagonistic, ambivalent, or supportive. Um, and I was as nervous as all get out because Paul's got a ferocious <laughs> intellect and he's written his own book. And so I sent him the manuscript. And of course, he made me wait four or five days before he commented. <laughs> and, um, and the Sunday afternoon, when I was sitting here at home and I saw PK come up on my phone, I mean, my stomach did resemble a washing machine in spin mode. And, um, he said, uh, he said, you, you know, he got on the phone. He said, you've done a really good job. He said, uh, he said, I've read 197 pages so far. And he said, he said, I find the first 180 of those pages incredibly confronting and really difficult to read. But he said, I don't have a problem with what you've said. Okay. And he said, I will read the rest and get back to you in a few more days. So he got, he read it all. He got back to me. And he said, I really think you've done a great job. I still, you know, those, the first half of the book is really tough for me. Um, and, but then he proceeded to become very involved and, and he spent a lot of time with me adding to things, suggesting some people. I mean, I was, I was sitting in this chair doing an interview with a character in the book 48 hours before the book went to the printers. Wow. Okay. And I, we had pages designed and everything. So I, it was surgery because Mark would know this. We had to take, if I wanted to put, it was Rachel Perkins, right? If I mm. wanted to put two paragraphs from Rachel in, I had to take out two paragraphs on a particular page from someone and write it in and graft it in. And then if I wanted some commentary from her in another 50 pages time, I had to pick that page, work out what I was taking out and put it in like that but that was Paul's input going you know I'd like Rachel's voice to be in the book and I said well I've been chasing Rachel and so have you she he said let me try one more time you know and bang 
So I'm doing that. But to Paul's credit, throughout all of this, he never asked me to remove anything. And there mm. were a couple of things, even after I'd self-censored, there were some things where I knew that if he railed against them and said probably even one or two words about them, I would have taken them out. Yeah, but okay. He, he didn't, so I thought, okay, we'll, we'll, we'll go with it. So, it definitely is a warts and all portrayal of, of Paul. And I think there are certain elements that might, might surprise people about him. I mean, particularly, I guess, the extent of his drug use. I mean, some people might be aware that he did dabble, but it was on and off, you know, quite intensive at times. And of course, as, you, as, you, as the book covers, and as some people will know, Paul is incredibly squeamish about early parts of his career. Like he, he's had his first two albums wiped from existence as best as he can. He just mm. doesn't want people to hear them. Uh, which was a, it was a surprise to me. I kind of do think of his career beginning with, with Post, but of course it doesn't. Yes, no, and, and, and that's what he, he would like the world to believe. But then I had this un unnerving moment when we're sitting doing a, we're having lunch in Tamworth, in fact, and we were talking about those first two records. And he looked at me and he said, I'm not really happy with my vocals on post. And I went, oh, <laughs> don't tell me. Post's going to go through. <laughs> yeah, life's going to start with gossip, you know, <laughs> like, you know. Um, but, and I, and I tried very hard to get to the, the bottom of why he hates or dislikes those records too much. I think I, my personal feeling is he might be softening a little bit um, because particularly the second of those two records, Manila, the one recorded, of course, in the Philippines, um, remains one of my favourite Paul Kelly records, period. Mm. I think it's some of the strongest songs, amazing playing, you know, everything about that record. I loved writing about it because it was fear and loathing in Manila. Even Paul says, <laughs> what were we thinking? You know, a bunch of slightly heroin addicted guys decide to go to Manila to make a record. What could possibly go wrong? Okay. Um, but uh, and the only thing I got was that someone said to me towards the end, I said, why does he want to disown those records so much? And, and they just said they thought that they remind Paul of a time and place in his life that he doesn't want to be reminded of. Mm -hmm. And he doesn't want to be taken back to the same world that Mark writes about, which was a heroin-drenched Melbourne mm -hmm. in the late 70s. I mean, whilst writing my book, someone said, if you wanted to pick two overachieving heroin addicts from Melbourne in the late 70s who you expected <laughs> to still be alive in 2020, as when our books came out, uh, and at the peak of their popularity and in some extent's creati creativity, mm. the names Nick Cave and Paul Kelly would not have sprung immediately <laughs> to mind. Mm -hmm. You know, and I, they would, they both. Um, and then I guess mine is more a revelation um, because Paul did out himself as a heroin user in his own book. Um, yes, there is a lot more about heroin in my book. You know, Nick is fairly well associated with, with his use of that drug. Um, but, yeah, I think, uh, yeah, that, that stuff has, I know from readers, has come as a, as a, as a surprise to them that that's you know but but both mark and i are, are very much drawing on now, did we work out that they would have known each other in those days mark? I, I, they were aware of each other i did want to ask this actually yeah, yeah. yeah. did I mean, they cross paths they must have 
They had the same manager, didn't they, at one point? And Barry Earl? Is that, is that correct? Well, uh, not quite. Ba- Barry, Barry managed... Uh, Barry worked with Paul, but to, Barry ran Suicide Records. So okay. I guess he was mm. Nick's record label bus. He, for a- he was trying to shape... Uh, Nick Cave's early career at one point, though, wasn't he? He was telling them what to yeah, wear and to, things like that. He was trying yeah. to do everything from <laughs> dictate the clothes they wore to, <clears throat> yeah, to ma- manage the boys next door, running suicide records. He was the kind of bridge man to Michael Gadinsky that suicide was based oh, He did manage the boys next door, did he? Yeah. He did, well, yeah, yeah you know, like he, <laughs> in a fashion and not for long. <clears throat> I think that, uh, right. you know, he, he, he you know, I, I, actually, I interviewed Michael Gudinski for the book, and he said that Barry was not the most artist-friendly manager in the world. Like, I think he had pretty grandiose entrepreneurial ideas and saw himself <laughs> in a Jake Rivera kind of mode, and he was going to sort of restyle them, and he just got sick of Nick being so difficult and Tracy Pugh being so kind of delinquent and threw up his hands, you know. At, and he, he was the guy who suggested that this bunch of um, largely heroin-affected Melbourneites should go to Manila. Oh, right. really? Oh, I didn't know that. <laughs> like, wow. okay. Yeah, well, yeah. So. Well, but, 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 you know, like in my book, at least, Barry all comes across as... Di- I mean, and Michael Gudinski does as well. They're, 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 they're like these kind of pirate characters <laughs> that are kind of buccaneering through and... and, 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 and the, it's not to say they're saints, but the world is a more interesting and dynamic place. And all these people wouldn't have had their shot without them. Like the boys next door who became the birthday party and launched Nick Cave onto the world, it couldn't have happened with that sort of early stage situation where Michael Gudinski is licensing Barriol to pick up the whole punk thing. And and Barriol, I mean, he, he really did spot, like he spotted the models, he spotted the boys next door. He got these people in, like a, a, he, you know, he wasn't. There was, there was, you know, and, and in actual fact, lethal weapons, you know, even that was sort of slagged at the time. The artist disowned it. It's a little bit like hearing about Paul Kelly in Manila. Lethal weapons is actually a pretty good kind of punk pop record. It was an attempt to get these acts over in a in a commercial way. You know, like they're not making records to to have no one listen to be cool. They're actually trying mm-hmm. to have a success. And of course, they were right up against it, you know. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, go- going to the question we touched upon, though, are either of you aware of of uh, Paul and Nick ever crossing paths? Because oh. there's so many similarities, and I, I dare say they would have gotten along quite well, wouldn't they? Well, I don't know. When people are really <laughs> talented, do they get along well, or do they no, have I, a kind of competitive vibe to them? You know, I, I, I think I, they do. I, I know that Paul hung around that emerging St Kilda punk scene and made a point of checking out what was what was there because you've got to you've got to remember that you know the dots were sort of that new wavy punk band themselves and and so you know and and Paul was associating with the bleeding hearts and you know all of those figures from Melbourne so um you know I'm not aware of them being buddies but mm. I'm sure they they would have I would be very surprised if Nick hadn't seen a Paul Kelly gig and Paul hadn't seen a, a Boys yeah. Next Door gig. You know. I think there's a, a bit of a, a, a time drag too with Paul coming from uh, Adelaide to Melbourne. And, uh, I mean, you know, I'd have to go back and check all, all my notes. But they, certainly they, 
overlap. They were aware of uh, each other. You know, the boys next door, I think, were kind of like kings of St Kilda in the Crystal Ballroom when I believe Paul was hitting town and still establishing himself, which he began to do pretty quickly on the, you know, and the cut being embraced by the Carlton scene. And, I mean, it is an incredible story, I think, that either side of the river, effectively, you've got Paul Kelly and Nick Cave evolving and, and, and who've continued to evolve parallel. And, and, and even the differences in their, 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 their careers are interesting. The Paul Kelly is, is such a sort of, in many ways, such a beloved and profoundly integrated into the Australian experience songwriter. And, and, and Nick, of course, he, he's grown to enjoy some of that love, but he was always the sort of the dark prince for most of that career and was, had a very kind of European slant to his work and has enjoyed this sort of international success, but always felt that people you know, don't fully understand how, how, how deeply Australian he is. And I'm sure, in my opinion at least, that, that Paul would love some of that international rec- recognition that Nick has and that Nick would love some of that sort of Australian love that, that, and, and, and understanding that, that Paul has, you know, but they're, they're both mighty songwriters. There's no question about it. And you only have to look at their mm. catalogue to see that. Mm. It is, uh, I mentioned it earlier, I suppose, that it is amazing that they both sort of made it through and achieved the success they did, given their, their penchant for, for quite uh, heavy drug use. I wanted to ask a question along the lines of, um, can you look at both of these stories as a blueprint for success in the music industry, if you take away the drug aspect, if you look at how doggedly determined they were to, uh, to I guess, shape their own destiny, um, they seem to have a very clear image of how they wanted to uh, appear in public in particular, and uh, sort of, I guess, wildly ambitious in lots of ways, uh, and at, at the expense perhaps of, of friendships and things like that. Uh, do they both serve as a blueprint of, of how to be successful in music? Well, I mean, with Paul, I mean, Paul, Paul's incredibly, um, you know, he's been very, very determined from the very beginning. And yes, there has been, there was quite a lot of collateral damage in, in the, you know, the 70s and into the early 80s around his world. I mean, he, he was very, he's very single minded about what he, he wanted. I, I said to him at one point, when, when did you, first decide that you were a songwriter and he said when I wrote my first song mm-hmm. and where you've got what I took away what I've taken away a lot from Paul is the ferocious determination I mean he, he did some really mundane hard-working jobs you know he worked on in mines he worked on shipyards you know he did all sorts of manual labor he was a brickies laborer when he when he moved to sydney in the, in the 1984 um but everything he did he said was just to enable him to be a songwriter now the the, the main lesson that i i say to many many artists i work with is if you look at the story of paul kelly he gets signed by a record label that really don't think that he's a recording artist. Yeah. You know, Michael Gadinsky and the people at Mushroom thought of him as a songwriter and they were reluctant for him to make records. So he makes the first album. It has a minor hit in Billy Baxter on it, but doesn't really set the charts on fire. Then they go on this magnificent foray to the Philippines and record this great record that again doesn't sell. 
Mm-hmm. And Paul moves to Sydney, and he's 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 physically not in great shape. His uh, his emotional life is in disarray. He and Hillary, you know, have split up. He's got a young child. Uh, you know, things. You know, effectively, he doesn't have a record deal. And so, you know, he gets to Sydney and he records. Well, he comes and meets me again, um, and he records this largely acoustic album. Uh, which is called Post. Now, you know, everyone hails Post, you know, as this breakthrough masterpiece. But, you know, I I know the sales figures and most of the people that hail it as this masterpiece did not buy it at the time. Right. Um, But they did. They were all living in Surrey Hills near me. (laughs) Yeah, they were all all around the Hopeton Hotel. And the thing is that Mushroom didn't want to release that record. Paul and I were going to release that as a mail order album because there was no record label. So, and then begrudgingly, it came out on the white label through Mushroom and didn't sell a lot of copies. So you've got this guy who's three albums down the track and nothing is really happening in a commercial sense. And at that point, you know, I said to him, you would have had every reason to start wondering if school teaching or something of that nature wasn't a more viable career option. But And most artists would have gone, you know, am I really cut out for this? Do I have what it takes? You know, am I not as good as I think I? They would be questioning a whole lot about their their belief and, and what they were trying to do. They'd also be going, you know, because Paul wasn't a kid either. They'd yeah. be going, okay, how am I going to make a living? What do I do? What did Paul Kelly do? He decided he wanted to make a bloody double out, didn't he? <laughs> you know, it's amazing. Is, yeah, to do is, that at that point in his career is, is incredible. Yeah, and the fact that, you know, sort of Michael Gudinski committed to doing it. Well, he only committed to giving us the money to make a single album. But, the, um, but yes, yeah, so, so, and, and Paul was, was adamant. And so when we got that budget to make a single album, it was like, well, it was never in doubt in Paul's mind that he was going to make a double album, which was Gossip, which happened to be the breakthrough record. Now, you know, before too long, you know, it, it didn't make the top 10 in Australia. I mean, it was not picked at number 14. But so you've got this guy who's, you know, on his fourth album before there is any tangible sense of uh, an income stream that might be heading his way to enable him to do what he wanted to do. So I, I think I think the... The the blueprints are, are, in his case, determination and an incredible belief in what he's going to do. And then if you look through the whole career, I mean, I do consider Paul Kelly a great artist by my definition of a great artist in that he has pursued for four decades a very singular vision about what he wants to do. And I don't think that he's ever made a willful concession to commercial um you know, requirements or whatever the word I'm looking for. Be, you know, he like a Prince or like a David Bowie or like, you know, not too many artists have always made the sort of records and songs that he wanted to make, be it a bluegrass record, be it a bloody dub reggae record with Professor Ratbag, yeah, you right. know, be it a theatre piece of, of poems about birds. <laughs> Hello, if you want to sell platinum records, that's not the way you're going to go about it, right? You know, he could have very easily continued that mid-80s run of Darling It Hurts, you know, 40 miles to Saturday night, 40 long, blah, blah, blah. And, and things would have been just fine. Thank you very much. Uh, but, you know, he, he, he breaks up his relationship, ends his relationship with the messengers. You know, he goes off on all of these creative, interesting, he does soundtracks. He's, he's constantly challenging himself and he's saying to an audience, you know, 
I hope you follow me. I hope you come with me. But if you don't, yeah, well, you know, it's not going to change the records I make. And if you if you jump off the Paul Kelly train at one destination and you decide to rejoin five stations down the road, you know, it's good too. You know, that'd be, it'd be nice to see you again. But yeah. it's not like when we get to five stations down the line, you're going to hear a record that sounds just like gossip. So you'll be back. <laughs> you know, that's not how he works. And and it's also, I think Mark will say, you know, very much how, how Nick works too. Yeah. Well, I was going to say that one of the really, as a, as a long time Paul Kelly fan, I was quite taken aback that he often had this my way or the highway attitude. I've always seen him as being this sort of, sort of a gentle nature, but he really did speak his mind when he had to speak his mind. It was fascinating. Um, yeah, Mark, uh, Nick Cave, uh, obviously there are some parallels with, with Paul Kelly there. Um, what's your response well, to that? Well, it's really interesting to hear Stuart talk because for sure, which has already been cited, you know, determination, single-mindedness, you know, absolute trueness to, to a hard-edged extent to one's own sort of art and, and what it requires and it was also interesting to hear Stuart talk. It just made me kind of recognise, similarly to Nick too, you know, I mean, for sure the boys next door were the, the, the cool cats on the scene at the, the Crystal Ballroom, but outside of that, they weren't selling a lot of records. The, the, in fact, they were getting more kind of artier and weirder as, as time was sort of marching on just before they left Australia. They arrived in England. Nobody wanted to know about them or sign them or have anything to do with them. And it, the the conversation Stuart was just having just set me think about that that these these artists that the reasons that kind of made the road hard for them are the reasons that have also allowed them to both succeed and to endure. And there's this notion sometimes with artists that what some people see of as a failure, i.e., a commercial mistake, can often be the key to their longevity because they're not interested in repetition. They're not even necessarily interested in particularly in even pleasing their audience, although they obviously <laughs> love having an audience. Mm. You know, they're interested in what their art demands of them. And, you know, and um, I mean, in, in the long sort of marathon run, Nick and Paul have obviously sort of proved their decisions to be the right ones. And, and even the work that may have been called into question or that they themselves are a bit funny about, you know, if you're looking at, you know, a, a record like sort of Manila or in, in the case of my book, the, the sort of early what Nick would probably regard as his juvenilia almost with, you know, an album like Door Door and, and He Hall, mm. which is much more experimental. You look back at that music and think, actually, you know what? They're actually pretty bloody good records. It's, it's just that, mm. you know, across the extent of a life, you've, you've made 10 masterpieces, 10 really good records, and you've got another eight that are interesting. It's like, <laughs> wow, you know, if that's the worst that's going to happen, that you've made an interesting record rather than a masterpiece, I think you're in pretty good hands. Yeah. Yeah, someone, someone said the other day, and I thought it was interesting, you know, they, they were talking about Bob Dylan's catalogue. And, you know, a lot of people write off so many Dylan records, but someone said, you know what? Every one of those 50-odd albums, no matter how kind of mediocre a lot of them are, there's not one of those records that doesn't have something mind-blowing on them. Mm -hmm. You know, and I think it's the same with both Nick and with Paul, you know, there are records that I don't care for of Paul's as much as others, but there's always something there, mm. you, know, you know, and you might have to search it out. You might have to go looking for it. But, but you know, even even at their most maybe, you know, when they are, are less inspired than they are at other times, they're, they're still doing pretty interesting stuff. 
Yeah. Both very literary guys as well. I think that's incredibly interesting, very intensely well read and uh and able to call upon that and and so that and and they've always chosen their bands wisely too. They've always got gun musicians with them. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, and yeah, in both books you do get the sense that um they were very voracious readers. And in fact, I as a young man I discovered Raymond Carver through through Paul Kelly and everything's turning to white. Uh I wanted to ask you both uh, about your approach to the actual writing of the book in terms of the style and uh, the prose. Does the subject uh, influence the style, the way you write it at all, do you think? Or do you both have a style or approach that you just developed throughout your career as a, as a music journalist and as a writer? Um, Stuart, do you want to go first? Yeah, I mean, this is probably less stylized than other books that I've written you know my with my Michael Gadinsky book I mean I literally did spend an hour every day before I started writing trying to get into what I called Gadinsky zone <laughs> and, and I and I actually had and I consciously every day tried to conjure up what I imagined Michael would the way he would think and, and and I tried to bring his talking style into my head and so the book reads I, I tried to write it like Michael Gadinsky talks and thinks or talked and thinks uh, and so so that that had a, a much more distinct I thought um, style and voice to it um, than than the Paul the, my Paul thing is is a little more straightforward it uh, because it's very driven by other people's voices. Mm -hmm. um, there, there is a lot less of me in there than probably any other book that I've written because I had so many characters, and it was a big juggling act. And and uh, and in fact, you know, the, the the book that you read, my Paul Kelly book, is is, is was massively. I mean, my. my both Mark and I can both attest to the role of editors, and uh, and I, on the, for the most part, I've I've always had really great editors. I had a really, really, really great editor on the Paul book, um, because at some point, should the original manuscripts ever be available for consumption <laughs> by the public, uh, one will see that the, the book that I turned in bears very little resemblance to the book that is in the bookshops. Okay. Um, in, in, that, in that I had every character having almost a chapter and I had Paul into, coming in and out of all of that, but as a separate voice. So Chris Lang, you know, on Chris Langman, the chapter was called Chris Langman. And then there was one called Chris Worrell. And then there was right. one called Michael Gadinsky. And there was one called Michelle Higgins. So it was almost like my approach that I had with the roadies of all of these characters. And, and these characters quite often contradicting each other about various events and things that had happened. But then it was suggested, um, in fact, I remember my publisher calling me up and she said, Stuart, I'm going to send you a couple of chapters of what the editor's done to your book. She said, <laughs> don't be afraid. It does look just a little different. Uh, and she'd done this masterful job, along with my partner, Susan, who for, you know, three or four weeks stayed up till three o'clock in the morning reshaping this manuscript because I was too overwhelmed by it mm -hmm. to, uh, to actually see a clarity 
I'd done all the writing. I mean, every word in the book is my writing. It's my research and all that. But the way it was, it's being stitched together, mm. I mean, it was really what, what Susan and my editor did was effectively take the entire book apart. Yeah, they and, reassembled it by the same And time. reassembled it. Yeah. Okay. Uh, with no guarantee that I would like the reassembly process. <laughs> Be hard uh, to disassemble, I suppose. Although and, you had your original manuscript, and then and then so when I looked at it without swearing, I went, "This is dot 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 good." <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, so so yeah, it's um, yeah that, that and, and so, yeah. But getting back to your original question, Nick, it uh, it probably has less style. I mean, I, I didn't try. To, Unlike the Michael Gudinski book, or, or I didn't try and write like Paul Kelly, how I imagined Paul Kelly would would write. You know, I it it was I was more the 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 um, what's the word I'm looking for? But the, you know, the, I was the guy who talked to all of the characters and let the characters talk and knew how to prompt the characters about the yarns and the stories and the events. And then I, I really let them, them. So if, if, if there's a stylistic tone, it's, it's very character driven. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Mark, how about you? Were you influenced by uh, caveness? If I can use that adjective. Not, or... not as, well, I mean, no more than, not especially really. I mean, you know, I'm uh, 60. Uh, mm-hmm. I'm not sure how old you are, Stuart, but I mean, the painting is we've grown up with these guys, you know, so you, you're soaked in the same kind of culture, the films, the books, the music, mm. the, the events, you know, whether it's sort of Gough Whitlam sort of era or, or Margaret Thatcher or whatever the hell else has sort of, you know, impacted on things, whether it's Brett Whiteley or Alice Cooper. Yeah. I mean, they're all there inbuilt in you. So often I think there's... There, you might not have a similarity of voice, but there are lots of sort of kind of cultural kind of affinities that that that, that make it maybe easier for, for me and Stuart to have written the books that we have about Paul Kelly and Nick Cave than, than someone perhaps of another generation because it's sort of intuitively a part of who we are as well. Um, you know, I mean, I was probably more interested in the possibilities of, of trying to do a... a biography in, in in new and different ways uh, and, and that I think initially caught was another reason that caused me lots of problems because I had really sort of high artistic ambitions uh, but I, I think those ambitions are still there in Boy on Fire in lots of respects. Um, maybe in terms of voice you know humour you know because Nick can be pretty funny but then so can most of the people that I spoke to so if there's a feeling of voice that came from others in the book, I, I think it might be a, a, this sort of dry or black sense of humour that's very Australian that was a reminder for me to to not get entirely kind of carried away with the, the cultural side of, of things and, and being too arty alone and too literary and to just to, to remember this sort of kind of wild sense of humour that was undercurrent to things. So, I mean, that was a, an influence. Um, I'm sorry, Mark. That's okay. I was just also going to just say uh, uh, that that maybe the chapters tended to change a little bit, a little bit like swimming in a river or something, because depending on who was speaking, the the, the tone would sort of shift and that would kind of spill out over the way I was writing. But uh, I was always aware, I mean, you know, like the, the thing that happens particularly with someone like Nick is 
that, that, that there's a, this sort of veneration of him and you see it online, particularly at fan sites that is so full on, but you see it too in, in, in rock journalism. And I've been guilty of it myself in the past. You, you, you get carried away with the verbiage. So I, I knew I wanted to con control the tempo and control the language and, and make the most of it as a rock and roll book and as a rock journalist, but just to sort of like, you know, keep it tuned, held back to number seven, you know, like 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 just hold hold it in, it reined in rather than kind of let myself sort of uh, get lost in it all, I guess. And I, I think that was important too for there to be a sense of restraint in the book and a, and a feeling of being in control of all the material as much as anything. Mm. And, yeah. and in my case too, I, I also, Nick, I... I mean, as I said, I, I didn't go back and read Gravy or anything, and it, I find it fascinating that Paul can write a 600-page book about Paul and I can write a 350-page book about Paul, mm. and there's only a couple of things in common in the two books. Mm. But, but also I consciously didn't set out to do... I mean, Paul explains how and why he wrote songs constantly because his book was based around 100 songs. Mm -hmm. And there's nothing that drives me crazier about a lot of music books is when the author tries to tell me what the song's about. Right. I'm okay. not interested <laughs> in telling, I'm not interested in that person trying to tell me what the songs are about, and I'm not interested in telling someone what the songs are about. I mean, okay. I, I whilst I was writing this book, I read uh, a, a well a half terrific book about a biography of Jody Mitchell. The half that was really great was the half of, about Jody Mitchell's life, which uh, with lots of information that I didn't know. Mm -hmm. The half that almost had the book thrown at the wall many many occasions was you know more than three hundred pages where this guy decided he was going to tell me what Jody Mitchell's songs were about. You know what? I can work it out. <laughs> And uh, and what I think they're about may not be what Joni Mitchell biographer author guy thinks they're about, and and I find it so patronising and condescending. You know, I, I you know I can sit there and, and fill up another four hundred pages of my book on Paul by you know telling you exactly what I think Adelaide is about and what leaps and bounds. I can you know I could have written twenty pages about Aussie rules football and the and the Nilex building and the history. I mean, I spent more time than one should reasonably spend. You know, examining Mark talked earlier about rabbit holes. I know more about the Batman Faulkner Inn in Launceston than pretty much anyone. <laughs> Because I went down that rabbit hole. You will ask why, Nick. You are wondering. Because it's the venue where Paul Kelly and the Messengers played their last ever gig. Do I need to know anything more about the Batman Faulkner Inn in Launceston <laughs> than that? No. We, you know, we, we're done with that bit of information. But I did. I looked up photos of what it used to look like. I tried to work out where the band room was and all sorts of stuff. <laughs> but, you know, you, you, but getting back to the, you know, I, I just shied right away from, I wanted to tell a story about, you know, Paul and his world. I didn't want to do an analysis of Paul's songwriting and, you know, and his poetry and what he was he was on about, you know. And, yeah. And, you know, and that was, you know, other people would do it, may do it very differently. People might write books about Paul in the future where they take a completely different approach but you know it's the same with Dylan books I mean there are so many goddamn Dylan books mm. explaining what he means in John Wesley Hart 
explaining the nuances of like a Rolling Stone. For God's sake, Graham Marcus wrote an entire book about it. You know, Dave Marsh writing a 300-page book on Louis Louis, I can sort of get. But, um, you know, I just did not, I didn't, I didn't want to go there because, you know, I'm second-guessing what falls falls on, you know, what he was thinking and, and, and you know, He's got no interest in going into that stuff really in an interview, you know, and, and, and that was where I would veer into asking him stuff that was in his own book. Sure, you know, sure, a couple of, of times I, I did lead into that in interviews. He said, you know, he said, look, I wrote about that. Yeah. You know, okay. And I went, you know what? Good point. <laughs> Believe it alone. Yeah. Well, uh, Stuart and Mark, Lastly, I wanted to ask you, have you had time now that these books are on the bookshelves out there to think about the next project? Stuart, you've been quite prolific in the last decade or so. You must have something else in mind. I actually wrote another book while I was writing, Paul, um, just to make Mark feel really bad. Uh, <laughs> yes. but, sorry, mate. No, I, I, <laughs> I, I... For the last, uh, last couple of months, I... Of the poor book, I actually had a, a little ritual uh, where every morning I would get up and before I went anywhere near Paul, I would write three to four hundred words on a famous, or in some cases not famous, Australian song of the 1970s. Okay. Had to have been released on a 45 because Jane Clifton and I have written a book uh, which is our perception on Australia in the 1970s through a hundred songs okay so we each did 50 so every day for two months or close to two months i would start my writing day by writing 400 words about eagle rock or arkansas grass by axiom mm -hmm. or whichever go-between song i did from the 70s or whatever uh and then i'd and i only did one a day and when i'd written those four 350 400 words then that was done until the next day and then i'd work on paul so so that's um that's done and and also a book of interviews i did with elvis presley's band the tcb band came out in america but i'm I'm starting a little publishing company of my own with Brian mm -hmm. Taranto called Love Police Books. Uh, and that Elvis book in a revamp for a version will come out through that imprint. Uh, and I'm just looking around for a big, a big project that, that I, you know, and I, I'm kind of, I'm not sure that there's a music project around that I really want to spend two or three years of my life working on. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, I'm not sure there's a subject left that that I personally can engage with for that that period of time. There are a lot of subjects that warrant books, but I, you know, I, I and, there, and there are things that I think should be done, and I may well look at them for this smaller imprint. Like I think there should be a Lobby Lloyd book. There should be a Wendy Saddington book. There should be an Ian Ryland book. I can go on. <laughs> uh, and they may well see the light of day in this small imprint, pretty much a little bit like the 33 and a third series of books where there are about a hundred, you know, there are about 35, 40,000 words and, and that. Um, but in terms of a big book, no, I'm not sure at the moment, but I'm, I, my partner said to me yesterday, she said, you're ready, aren't you? And I said, yes, I'm ready. <laughs> so I, I've, I've had that pause period and I'm kind of itching to get back into something that's big and meaty, but I don't know what it is yet. 
Okay. Well, look forward to it, whatever it turns out to be. And Mark, uh, would there be more of Nick Cave's life or do you feel like you've covered him as best you can? I think there'll be more. I mean, every man and his dogs ask me, oh, what about volume two? When's it coming? Uh, I'm just like far out, man. Like, oh, it took me 10 years to carry this to the shops. And it's like, you know, they'll be wanting me to knock it over by Feb, you know. I um, But I, I think I'll, uh, you know, I'm, I'm I'm pretty well, you know, committed to the idea now after a lot of hesitation because it was there was so much heartache and difficulty involved to do a volume two because I've, I've got such an awesome reaction from people to to, to this book to boy on fire uh and you know i've got absolutely because i did so much research and so many interviews enough material to sort of cover nick and the birthday party in london and his whole period in berlin to sort of saturation levels and sao paulo as well and that sort of has its own kind of finite energies you know beyond that you know i mean i, I think that they'll be you know, you'll be pushing over my tombstone before I make any further progress, but I'd like to do that volume two. Um, my publishers in the meantime are interested in this novel that I've sort of got a draft of that I, I had kind of tucked away as well after doing my MA. I know everybody's got a novel in their drawer, but, you know, <laughs> I think it's pretty good, you know. I haven't. You know, <laughs> you know what, Stuart? I'm glad because you're writing way too much in my opinion. <laughs> And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm feeling a bit like Stuart too, though. Like I'd, I've wondered about sort of putting together some sort of, you know, best of my journalism or some collection. I'd really love to do something like that. But yeah, I'd, I'd love to work on a, a nonfiction project that is, is somehow finite, that doesn't necessarily chew up another five years of my life. And, you know, whether that's a, a, a more controlled character study or to do with an event of some kind i'm not sure but but to basically take advantage of the the journalistic side of my nature and to to move through something a little more quickly and and spend six months from woe to go on something but that's sort of one of those place and time things and you know like i mean what comes to mind of course is truman capote in cold blood and the, and what but if, but that turned into a monster all its own for him yeah absolutely well, thank you for your time today, gentlemen. It was lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Stuart. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Mark. Yeah, thanks. And thank you, Mark, for being a part of the podcast. No worries. Stuart Coop's book, Paul Kelly, The Man, The Music and The Life in Between, is out now online and in all good bookstores through Hachette Publishing. Mark Mordew's Boy on Fire, The Young Nick Cave, is out now through HarperCollins Australia. Don't forget the Newcastle Writers Festival will make its triumphant return from September 24 to 26 this year in 2021. So stay tuned for the program announcement. You've been listening to the Newcastle Writers Festival podcast series, Stories to You. I've been Nick Milligan. Thanks for listening. to you.